Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Vern Sankey was at the top of the kidnapping business in the 1930s. In early 1934, he snatched a man named Charles Betcher from his home in Denver, Colorado. Betcher's father agreed to pay the ransom of $60,000. Sankey released Betcher after 17 days. The police formed a plan to catch Sankey when he picked up the ransom money. They would let him collect the money, and then they would stop his car. But Sankey fooled them. The ransom money was thrown out of a moving car. Instead of grabbing it and going to his own car, Sankey grabbed it and ran to a crowded shopping district. He disappeared into the crowd and successfully eluded police. But soon after the escape, Special Agent Melvin Purvis received a tip that Sankey was in Chicago. Purvis was the special agent in charge of the Bureau of Investigation Chicago Field Office. He hunted for Sankey for almost a year. Then Purvis learned that a man fitting Sankey's description was at a barber shop. Purvis quickly ordered a raid. When the barber covered Sankey's face with hot towels during a shave, the agents moved in. They captured the man whom J. Edgar Hoover called America's number one kidnapper. Hoover continuously cited the Sankey case when he praised Special Agent Melvin Purvis. And now, Hoover handed Purvis his biggest challenge to date, the capture of John Dillinger. A month after the barbershop raid, Dillinger escaped from the Crown Point jail using a wooden gun. It was now Purvis's job to bring him in. From Black Barrel Media, this is season four of Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. In this season, we're telling the story of the most notorious bank robber in modern American history, John Dillinger. This is Chapter 7, Federal Fugitive. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms— Coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, 
and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. For most of Dillinger's 13-month crime spree, bank robbery was not a federal crime. So the Bureau of Investigation had not officially involved itself in his case. It had helped local law enforcement in small ways, but it wasn't leading the charge against John Dillinger. That changed in March of 1934 when Dillinger escaped from the Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana. He stole the sheriff's car and drove it across the state line to Illinois. It wasn't a federal crime to rob a bank, but it was a federal crime to drive a stolen car across state lines. During the escape, Dillinger finally committed a federal offense, and the Bureau of Investigation issued a federal warrant. J. Edgar Hoover called Melvin Purvis on the day of Dillinger's escape. Purvis had to inform his boss that Dillinger hadn't been their responsibility. Hoover had never instructed them to start a file on Dillinger. If they were going to lead the chase for the most wanted bank robber in America, they would have to start from scratch. Hoover told them to do it. The apprehension of John Dillinger was now the number one priority of Special Agent Melvin Purvis and his Chicago field office. It would easily be the biggest challenge of Purvis's six-year career. Purvis was four months younger than Dillinger, and like the outlaw, he was named after his father. He'd grown up in South Carolina, and when he was 23, he traveled to Washington, D.C. to find a job. His first stop was the State Department. He walked into the building unannounced and asked for a job. It was apparently a humbling experience for a young man brimming with confidence. He said later, it could not have been more negative unless I had been physically tossed out the front door. There were potentially two strikes against that first attempt. He was two years shy of the minimum age requirement of 25, and he might have been significantly shorter than the minimum height requirement of 5'9". Sources vary on the height of the man who was sometimes called Little Mel. Some say he was 5'4". Others, like his son, say he was exactly 5'9". Regardless of the height and age, Purvis wasn't dissuaded. He contacted his local congressman, who was also a friend of his father, and told him about the experience. The congressman advised Purvis to try the Bureau of Investigation. The bureau chief was cleaning house at the agency and seemed to want young lawyers like Purvis. Purvis had his law degree and had worked as a lawyer in his hometown of Timminsville, South Carolina, but he wasn't interested in practicing law. He was interested in fighting crime. He sent a letter to J. Edgar Hoover. Two days later, the congressman sent a letter to Hoover that vouched for Purvis's qualities. By the end of December 1927, Melvin Purvis had been hired by the Bureau of Investigation. He was promptly sent to Dallas to begin his service. He was given the standard rule book, but beyond that, there was no formal training for a bureau agent. Purvis solved his first case because of his experience as a lawyer. 
He was used to digging through mountains of information to find details that other people considered insignificant. In Dallas, he was assigned the cold case of a stolen car. He discovered a phone number that had been overlooked by other investigators, and it ultimately led him to the culprit. Within a couple weeks, he had cracked his first case, and he was on the map at the Bureau. Purvis was diligent and methodical. He was an elegant dresser and drove a fancy car. His secretary, Doris Rogers, said, Purvis saw himself as a gentleman, which he was. He saw himself as doing a very important job and doing it with some dash. Within three years, he was in charge of his own field office, and he was a hands-on leader. He went on raids and stakeouts. He sat in on interrogations and sometimes questioned victims himself. He maintained a close relationship with J. Edgar Hoover. But while Hoover ruled by expressing disapproval of his employees, Purvis led with charm. He and Dillinger had that in common. In 1932, while Dillinger learned about bank robbery in Indiana State Prison, Purvis took command of the Chicago field office. Two years later, in the spring of 1934, Hoover handed Purvis the task of catching one of the most wanted criminals in the country. Because Purvis was late to the game, the first month of the effort didn't produce many results. Hoover sent him a letter to keep him from getting discouraged. It read, Keep a stiff upper lip, get Dillinger for me, and the world is yours. John Dillinger's lawyer, Louis Piquette, was everything you picture in a gangster's lawyer. He was almost 50 with white hair and a scandalous reputation. During the 1920s, Piquette had been the chief prosecutor in Chicago, but then he was indicted on charges of corruption. The charges were later dropped, and he went into private practice, where his clients were virtually all criminals. It's still unknown if Piquette provided Dillinger with the gun, real or wooden, that Dillinger used in his escape from Crown Point. But it is certain that Piquette knew the escape was going to happen. He was prepared to meet Dillinger in Chicago at 4.30 p.m. on the day of the breakout. When Dillinger arrived with his accomplice, Herbert Youngblood, Piquette told him that Billy Frechette was waiting for him in a nearby apartment building. Billy greeted her boyfriend with tears and a big hug. Dillinger and Youngblood hurried to her car and sped away. A while later, the couple dropped off Youngblood with $100 and a goodbye, and then headed to the apartment of Billy's half-sister. The Chicago police were furious about Dillinger's escape. They publicly threatened the outlaw. The head of Chicago's so-called Dillinger Death Squad said that since Dillinger always seemed to escape, he'd never go back to Indiana, except in a box. But newspapers were filled with a different sentiment. All over the country, people wrote letters to the editor that said John Dillinger was a man of the people. The letters begged the governors of Illinois and Indiana to pardon him. An Indiana farmer expressed his opinion in financial terms. He cited the economic devastation of the Great Depression and said, John's doing the country a favor by getting the money out of the banks and back into circulation. The Lake County Jail in Crown Point was now a tourist attraction. People flocked to the facility from nearby states. 
They were eager to trace the steps Dillinger took from the jail to the Main Street garage. Dillinger was becoming a full-blown folk hero. The day after his escape, Dillinger and Billy Frechette met John Hamilton and his new girlfriend. Hamilton had recovered from the seven gunshot wounds he'd suffered during the bank robbery in East Chicago, and he drove the couples to his home in St. Paul, Minnesota. They arrived to find a city filled with criminals. The local police were easily bribed, and this made St. Paul a popular hangout for lawbreakers. Among those currently hiding in town were Homer Van Meter, an old friend of Dillinger's from prison, and Babyface Nelson. Van Meter informed Dillinger that he, Nelson, and a man named Eddie Green had their sights set on a bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It was 170 miles from St. Paul, and they planned to hit the bank the next day. And Dillinger was in. On March 6, 1934, it was 30 degrees in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. John Dillinger had been out of jail for three days. He was now with a six-man gang, and he sported a mustache. Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Homer Van Meter, and Eddie Green stepped out of their getaway car and walked toward the Security National Bank and Trust Company. Their fedoras were pulled down low over their foreheads. Their collars were turned up against the cold. John Hamilton stayed with the car. The last man, Tommy Carroll, positioned himself by the front door of the bank with a Tommy gun under his top coat. A young bank employee spotted the group out the window and joked to her coworker that they looked like a pack of holdup men. The coworker held his finger over the alarm button, just in case she was right. Dillinger led the group inside. He had a 45 automatic pistol. Nelson, Van Meter, and Green had machine guns under their coats. Babyface Nelson produced his Tommy gun and shouted, This is a holdup. Van Meter and Green knocked down and disarmed a uniformed police officer who was there on personal business. The employee with his finger on the alarm pressed the button. A small alarm rang inside the bank. The bank president stepped out of his office in response to the alarm. Dillinger asked him if he had the combination to the safe. When the president replied that he didn't, Dillinger kicked him and told him to find someone who did. A nearby teller had the combination and opened up the safe. Van Meter hurried inside and collected $13,000. At that point, someone in the nearby newspaper building yelled that the bank was being robbed, and a motorcycle cop ran toward the bank to engage the bandits. Babyface Nelson spotted the police officer through the window. Nelson jumped up onto a desk and fired his Tommy gun in the man's direction. The bank's front window exploded. Bullets hit the officer in the stomach, the elbow, the right thigh, and the wrist. He crumpled to the ground, but he survived his injuries. Nelson shouted, I got one, I got one of them. In no time at all, almost 2,000 people were watching the robbery from outside the bank. They stood on the sidewalks. They stopped their cars in the middle of the road. They gawked from the surrounding buildings. More officers responded to the action. Tommy Carroll met them outside with his machine gun. 
He had four cops under control when the other members of the gang emerged from the bank. The four robbers were surrounded by a protective human shield made up of 40 customers and bank employees. The gang pushed its way toward the getaway car. They placed four women and one man on the car's running boards. The robbers rolled down the windows and grabbed the arms of the hostages from the inside. The gang had stolen $50,000 from the bank. Now they just needed to get out of town. Officer Harley Chrisman ran up to the bank as John Hamilton prepared to throw the getaway car into gear. Chrisman hurried to a nearby hardware store, commandeered a hunting rifle, and quickly loaded it. He hid in a basement stairwell, took aim, and fired on the getaway car as it passed. He nailed the car's radiator. The car began to smoke. The bandits considered grabbing another automobile, but it would take too much time to switch over the hostages. They continued down the road in their smoking car. None of the hostages wore coats. When they complained about the cold, Dillinger brought them inside the car where the women sat on the laps of the crooks. Soon after, Hamilton spied a police car coming up behind them. He stopped the car as the other gang members fired their machine guns at the vehicle. They hit the windshield, the headlights, and the radiator. The police couldn't return fire without endangering the hostages, so they pulled back. Hamilton managed to drive the getaway car another four miles before it gave out. As it did, he turned it across the road to block traffic. The blockade stopped a farmer in a Dodge. The robbers quickly transferred to the farmer's car. Dillinger told the hostages that there wasn't enough room for them in the new vehicle. They were free to go. A woman passing by took the time to chastise the stranded hostages for not wearing coats in the cold weather and then drove off without helping them. The gang headed back to St. Paul, Minnesota with another robbery and another escape to their credit. But police in Chicago and Indiana officially denied that Dillinger was involved with the robbery. Humorist Will Rogers wisecracked in his syndicated column, They had him surrounded in Chicago, but he robbed a bank in Sioux Falls that day. So they were right on his trail, just three states behind. John and Billy Frechette left Minnesota and returned to Chicago. They delivered $976 to Dillinger's lawyer, Louis Piquette, and met up with some friends. On that same day in Lima, Ohio, Harry Pierpont went on trial for the murder of Sheriff Jess Sarber. Pierpont had brutally killed the sheriff when the gang broke Dillinger out of jail in Dayton the previous year. Pierpont was found guilty and sentenced to death in the electric chair. The other two gang members captured with Dillinger and Pierpont in Tucson were also found guilty. One received life in prison and the other received a death sentence. The man with the death sentence died later that year in a failed attempt to escape prison with Pierpont. Harry Pierpont's death sentence was carried out in October 1934. He outlived his old friend John Dillinger by three months. During the trials of the three robbers, law enforcement thought Dillinger might try to break them out of jail, but he didn't. Instead, he had his eye on another bank. 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The First National Bank of Mason City, Iowa is located 23 miles south of the Minnesota border. It was a large bank in a small town. The bank had announced to the public that it had more than $240,000 in its cash reserves. The notice was almost certainly meant to instill confidence during the peak of the Great Depression, but it also acted as an invitation for John Dillinger. The group from the Sioux Falls robbery reunited in Mason City, and they added a new man who carried a commercial version of the Browning automatic rifle used by the military. The first man to spot the bandits was a newsreel photographer. He was filming the outside of the bank when the gang arrived. They told him to scram as they approached the bank, which denied all of us the chance to see film footage of John Dillinger and Babyface Nelson in action. Nelson and Tommy Carroll took up positions outside while the others headed inside. Dillinger wore a gray suit, a dark fedora, an overcoat, and a striped scarf. He guarded the entrance with a Tommy gun. John Hamilton, Homer Van Meter, and Eddie Green conducted the robbery, and they were not up to the task. Van Meter grabbed the bank president, but then lost him. The man locked himself in his office and alerted the police. But more concerning for the outlaws was that the Mason City Bank put its own spin on a tactic used by the bank in Greencastle, Indiana. The Greencastle Bank built a cage above its front door so that a guard could protect it from robbers, and that plan backfired. But the Mason City Bank built a guard booth inside the building. It was inside the front door and to the right, and elevated above the ground. It was made with bulletproof glass and had portholes to fire weapons. Somehow, Homer Van Meter and Eddie Green had totally missed this feature when casing the bank. Now the guard inside the booth fired a tear gas canister that hit Green in the back and almost knocked him over. Green spun around and fired his Tommy gun at the booth. The glass didn't break, but the impact sent splinters into the guard's ear and chin. In the lobby, gas poured out of the canister. It burned the eyes, noses, throats, and skin of the robbers. A bank employee upstairs grabbed another tear gas canister from a nearby cabinet and hurled it over the railing into the lobby below. The canister landed near a customer, who kicked it toward another customer, who then kicked it back. It continued pinballing around the lobby floor until it ran out of gas. Outside the bank, Babyface Nelson created a scene. He darted back and forth and fired his Tommy gun. He shot a sedan that came too close to the bank. But for a few moments, the newsreel photographer who had been filming the bank gave the robbers cover. Spectators couldn't tell if Nelson's display was part of a real robbery or a movie production. One man, who was oblivious, walked up to the bank and Nelson shot him in the leg. Dillinger stepped out of the bank's doorway and scolded Nelson. He asked the young hothead why he had to shoot the man. Nelson replied that he thought the guy was a cop. 
A Mason City judge had an office on the third floor of the bank. He looked down from his window at the gangsters on the sidewalk below. He pulled out an old six-shooter and fired at Dillinger. He hit Dillinger in the right shoulder. Dillinger returned fire but didn't hit the judge. Between the surprise tear gas attack inside and the evolving chaos outside, Dillinger decided it was time to go. The men inside rounded up 13 hostages to use as human shields. They moved out of the bank with $52,000, but they were forced to leave behind another $157,000. The judge on the third floor went back to his window and fired again. He hit John Hamilton in the right shoulder, but Hamilton and the gang continued to the getaway car. The gang stationed the hostages on the running boards and inside the vehicle. The car slowly made its way out of town. Once the outlaws were safely away, they released their captives. With the bandits gone, the newsreel photographer went back to filming the bank and the crowd that had assembled. And now he had an even better story. His footage was quickly processed and printed. It was screened for the next three nights at a local theater in town. After the Mason City robbery, Dillinger and Hamilton returned to St. Paul. Both men had gunshot wounds to the shoulder, but neither was severe. A doctor patched them up. But another man in Dillinger's orbit was not as lucky. Herbert Youngblood had escaped with Dillinger from the jail in Crown Point, Indiana. On the same day Dillinger robbed the bank in Mason City, Iowa, Youngblood was killed in a shootout with police in Port Huron, Michigan. Now Dillinger had to face the reality of the world he'd created. He was one of the most famous criminals in America. His image was everywhere, in the newsreels that played before movies and in all the papers. He hadn't yet been positively identified as one of the robbers in Mason City, but numerous witnesses thought one of the bandits looked a lot like him. A city patrolman said, I'm not saying that this bandit was John Dillinger. I do say, however, that there was a striking resemblance. Just a couple days after the robbery, Dillinger returned to Chicago. He met his lawyer's partner and made a request. He wanted a plastic surgeon. He had reveled in his celebrity status for a while, but now he was too famous. His face was too recognizable. The lawyer agreed to discreetly find someone to transform Dillinger's appearance. Meanwhile, Dillinger and Billy went back up to St. Paul, Minnesota. They now lived in the city with John Hamilton and his girlfriend. One night, Dillinger received an unexpected treat. He and Billy went to a movie theater to see a boxing film called Joe Palooka, which was based on a popular comic strip. A newsreel played before the show, and it was all about Dillinger. The filmmakers had interviewed Dillinger's father. John Sr. said, John isn't a bad boy. They're trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. Dillinger reportedly laughed so hard that Billy feared they'd be recognized and arrested. They weren't recognized at the theater, but unbeknownst to them, they had been noticed as suspicious gangster types in their apartment building. Not long after the movie theater experience, there was a knock on the door. It was 10.30 in the morning. Billy cracked the door open slightly, but kept the chain lock on. Two federal agents stood in the hallway. She tried to get rid of them, but they refused to move. 
They told her they would wait until she was properly dressed for company. Billy bolted the door and hurried to the bedroom to tell Dillinger. He threw guns and money in a suitcase and met her by the door with two Tommy guns. The agents didn't know the identities of the couple inside, but now they suspected they had stumbled onto someone important. They called for backup. At that moment, Homer Van Meter picked a bad time to visit his friends. As he walked up to the building, he came face to face with one of the agents. The two men drew their weapons and fired at each other. They chased each other around the building until Van Meter stole a garbage truck and escaped. Inside the apartment, Dillinger heard the gunshots and improvised a breakout. He fired through the wooden door of his apartment. A police detective in the hallway retreated out of the line of fire. Billy grabbed their suitcases and fell in behind Dillinger. Dillinger led her into the hallway. He fired warning shots in every direction. The police detective stayed hidden and fired his pistol blindly in their direction. One of the bullets hit Dillinger just above the left knee. It went clean through his leg and out the other side. He limped to the car with Billy. He slid into the passenger side and she dove in behind the wheel. She busted both fenders of the new car as she raced away from the scene. Dillinger was losing blood rapidly and she needed to find a doctor. Next week on Infamous America, Billy Frechette hurries to find help for Dillinger. They get lucky once again, but their luck is running out. The Bureau of Investigation captures Billy, and Special Agent Melvin Purvis has his first major confrontation with John Dillinger. It turns into an epic firefight at a Wisconsin resort called Little Bohemia. That's next time on Infamous America. Primary research for this season was provided by Derry Matera, author of the best-selling book, Dillinger, The Life and Death of America's First Celebrity Criminal. This season was written by Sean Puglisi and myself. Music editing and sound design by Mike Hisong at Sneaky Big Studios. Artwork by Matt Lockery of My Colorful Past. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. If you enjoyed the show, 
please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, for more details and join us on social media. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram and B-Barrel Media on Twitter. And if you want to contribute to the production of our shows, please visit our Patreon page. You can also find discounts on our merchandise. That's patreon.com slash blackbarrelmedia. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. No, I don't want you waiting for me on the morning train. Catch a cold out in the evening rain Now one of these bright mornings Maybe I'll fly away One of these bright mornings Oh, maybe of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.